Welcome. I'm Professor Danny Salamai. I'm a professor at this university, and I'm here to welcome you and to introduce Linda. It's great to see such a turnout. I'm sure that people are here for multiple reasons, including trying to understand what is going on in the United States. Um, so I'd like to commence by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. Uh, when I was thinking about that acknowledgement to country, which has become all too ritualised in the worst sense of the word, in the light of, of Linda being here with us tonight, it occurred to me that there's something very important in the acknowledgement of country when you're at a university. Because it's not just about relationship with land or sovereignty that we're acknowledging, it's also about relationship with knowledge and about whose knowledge counts and about whose forms of testimony count. And we know now that domination occurs not through just overt forms of political and physical violence, but it also occurs by invalidating the types of knowledge that people have and that people are sources of knowledge and that Indigenous people have been sources of knowledge on this land for a very long time. Uh, and linking that with Linda's work, in her work, in her writing and in her speaking, she's been part of this movement of interrupting or resisting the dominant forms of knowledge and making claims about different forms of knowing not only pointing out that through economic and class structures, particular types of people don't get to know, they don't get to count for what they know, they don't get to make claims in public spaces because of the very practical means of exclusion, like if you're working three jobs, you can't write an op-ed. If you're working two jobs when you're at school, you don't get to speak in the way that allows you to have credibility in the public sphere. But also, you don't even count if you look a certain way, if you speak a certain way, before you even get in the door. There's the question of, well, what would she know anyway? Well, as we're going to hear tonight, she knows quite a lot. <laughs> and she knows a lot that we really need to know. Um, the, one of the two organisations that's sponsoring this talk tonight is Academic Stand Against Poverty, which is an organisation that I'm part of in this part of the world. And in privileged countries like Australia, those of us who move in circles of the academy or particular class structures can completely render invisible the extraordinary forms of exclusion that happen in our own countries, not only to Indigenous people, not only to asylum seekers, not only to people with disabilities, not only to single mothers, but to people who are located in a particular way in the class structure. And rendering that visible, I think, is one of the jobs that we could do a lot better at the university. So it really is a, it's a singular pleasure to be able to introduce Linda to share her, her knowledge and the places from which that knowledge comes with us tonight. Um, of course, um, we're not just here to talk about that. I'm sure that a lot of people are here, as I am, because it's very difficult for us to make sense of what's going on in the United States right now with the rise of Trump. But 
Linda and I just went outside before and as she pointed out, are we really that different? I mean, I'm sure most people have read the press today and seen the minister's, Peter Dutton's comments about why people are hurting themselves in detention centres, that people are claiming to have been sexually assaulted so they can get into this country. And year after year, we vote in governments that torture kids in detention and people in asylum. So this question about how we validate certain forms of domination and power is one that I think it's very easy to point the finger at the United States and say, how could Trump be a Republican candidate for president? But we also have to reflect back to those questions for ourselves. So um, I, with those opening remarks, I'd really like to just welcome Linda. I also want to, um, two little, three announcements actually, housekeeping announcements. One is I want to acknowledge Jenna Price, who is here somewhere, who, um, Jenna, who is a doctoral candidate at this university, uh, and actually quite an accomplished academic at the university across the road. Uh, it's Jenna who, who brought Linda to us tonight and I just really want to thank her for making that possible for that connection. These networks are really important to what we get to do. Um, secondly, I just wanted to note again that this is being sponsored by Sydney Ideas and Academics Stand Against Poverty. If any of you are interested in that organisation, please let me know afterwards. And also that if you're interested in tweeting, uh, I think the, the Twitter, whatever they're called, as someone who doesn't tweet, uh, the tw um, are there for you to do. The, ha the hashtags, that's right. Um, the, I think Linda's going to speak for about, what, 30, about 30 or so minutes. Um, and then we'll take questions afterwards. Thank you. Hi guys. Um, one other bit of housekeeping. I've been asked to tell you that there is an event tomorrow. Please don't touch the teacups in the back. There's a price to pay and I don't know who's paying it. And we try to be good to workers. Um, so first off, how many of you guys are actually Americans? Yeah, okay. Um, and how many of you guys are obsessed with American politics in some way? Okay, if I told the joke, I drink more water than Marco Rubio. Awesome. All right. When you're international, you have to gauge the level of inside baseball you can do. And I'm here talking about like uh, my favorite thing to mock, which is American politics. I hope um, none of you have been here uh, hoping for something uplifting. I'm not noted for uplifting, um, which is why all of the jokes, actually. So first thing um, I get asked all of the time is, oh my god, what the hell, Donald Trump? And it's about that articulate in, in every time I get asked. And the answer is, we've done this before. In America, we do this actually pretty frequently. If you go back, you get McCarthyism. Before that, there was Father Andrew Coughlin. Before that, there was um, Aaron Burr shooting Alexander Hamilton. Um, so this, this kind of what's going on with, with this crazy demagogue and what's going on with all of this insane rhetoric, um, to put it into perspective, before uh, candidates were allowed to say that they wanted to be candidates, when we still all pretended that we were being drafted in, right, um, we used to just hire uh, surrogates to go insult the other guy. 
Um, so Thomas Jefferson's hired surrogate said about uh, John Adams that he had a hideous hermaphroditical character which has neither the force and firmness of a man nor the gentleness and sensibility of a woman. Adams people, in response, said that Jefferson was a mean-spirited, low-lived fellow, the son of a half-breed Indian squaw sired by a Virginia mulatto father. So when you go, where is this undercurrent, and where is this rhetoric, and this is unprecedented, no, no, we actually just stopped killing each other over American politics like a couple hundred years ago. So, so to begin with, there's that. Now, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that everything's peachy keen, right? Um, we've just seen Brexit, which was pretty much the same thing. That seems to be going really well for England. Um, and in, in Australia, we're seeing the rise of people like One Nation. Uh, what was it, two weeks ago, some right-wing extremist bombs a mosque or something here, was it? Yeah, so you guys aren't really immune either, so I'd love it if we'd all stop blaming America for being the crazy outlier. It's the entire Western world, which is why we're all fascinated with it, right? Because, like, how does this happen? And um, so with that... Let me explain a little bit about America for those that aren't familiar with kind of our ethos and our founding, um, and then the Trump jokes will commence, all right? So we're, um, we're a nation built on the principle that every government is inherently going to become tyrannical and kill you. Um, that's why we keep guns, because it doesn't matter how many tanks the government has, I've got an AR-15 and 500 rounds come on my land. But that, that assertion that we are able to arm ourselves against tyranny and what's more, there will come a time at which we will need to goes to the core of America's founding, which was, this is a hypothetical government. This was an experiment largely started by people in their late 20s to early 40s who were really, 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 really drunk. Like, way drunk. Like, during the Constitutional Convention, they had 55 barrels of whiskey and something like 200 bottles of wine. It was, it was like one day of the Constitutional Convention, everybody drank to themselves two bottles of wine, an entire pint of whiskey, and uncountable amounts of cider and beer. That's who set us up. Nobody figured this was going to last for very long, right? Like, it's meant to be a perfectible, changeable thing. But human nature being what it is, nobody actually really trusted it, so we just sort of assumed that we would either slowly collapse like a flan in a cupboard or that we would spectacularly explode somehow. So Americans have this, this understanding that there may come a day when we got to toss all the tea in the, in the bag. We don't know what that necessarily looks like, but it's, it's probably coming, and we're all... 95% sure it ain't going to happen in our lifetimes. So that's, that's kind of a, a very different mindset than I think the Australian mindset of like, no, we're definitely here. We should probably figure out how to make the best of it. Like Americans, we're all real happy to chuck each other out of the boat. But our government in the last couple of decades, right, has become as laissez-faire as possible. Like deregulate everything, try to go as far austerity as possible. Don't nominate a Supreme Court justice until you get a president you like. Uh, you guys wake up going, I wonder who the prime minister is today. We wake up going, I wonder if the government's going to be open today. So for that, that um, sense that America isn't working for anybody, 
not for anybody. We've got a government that's, you know, after two, two terms of Democrats who are supposed to be the harbingers of the workers, right? We don't call ourselves labor, of course, it's Democrats. But they're meant to be seen as, as people see the Labour Party here in the UK as on the side of the unions and the workers, right? So they're telling us we've got 5% unemployment, which is like Keynesian full, right? Like, go us. Only it's not being felt equally. So in, in the lower third of society, most of those jobs that we're employed in are going to be short-term casual work, which isn't precisely the same thing as coming out of a recession when we've got a minimum wage that's $7.25 an hour, which translates to somewhere around, I think, um, $9.93 Australian as our minimum hourly wage. And if you work in the service industry, it's $2.12. So you might have a job, but it's paying you $2 an hour. Um, not so good on making a country feel as though things are going well and very cohesive, right? So um, who's supporting Trump then? And that's what everybody wants to know. And, and, and the thing that everybody says is it's my people, right? It's going to be non-college educated, uh, people making, you know, in the lower court quintile of, of uh, amount of money that you could possibly make. And probably backwoods, probably also starred in the movie Deliverance. You know, it's, it's that kind of stereotyping that's going on. It's just, oh, and it's, it's men, right? It's, it's angry, poor white men. Only that's not what the data is telling us. The data actually tells us um, Donald Trump in the primaries won Maryland, which is the richest state in America. He won uh, Connecticut at number four, Massachusetts at number five. I mean, it's not only Appalachia that's, that's going for Trump. And actually what you find is those kind of rural, incredibly poor pockets, they were cruise people, Arubia people. They're religious. And Trump is like, well, he's Trump isn't he? Like, I'm from Utah. How many of you guys are familiar with the Mormon church? Okay, so um, pretty strict religion, state basically controlled by the, you know, church members, and they vote like church members, solid red state. But what Mormons believe in more than anything else is modesty, both sartorial and personal. He is the most immodest man that's ever happened in the face of the planet. For the first time in like 150 years, Utah might go blue. If that happens, both my father and I are going to die of shock, him of shame and me of just actual what the hell happened to my home state, right? And that's where Trump's kind of driving us to because we've got this insane demagogue that everybody seems to hate, yet somehow he's going to be the nominee. And... What's been funny to me about this whole thing is, okay, so we've got our, our, our deliverance star in Appalachia, right? That dude's got the power to change the course of world history and install Donald Trump in the presidency of the United States. Now, it's the only time in American history that some poor white redneck dude from West Virginia has ever had anything like power, but we want to believe that, that this narrow group of people is so like ill-educated and so backwards and so racist and so just dumb that they're going to suddenly... I, seize the means of control, I suppose. Um, and it doesn't actually track, right? So what we know is that business interests actually really like Trump. On that kind of a libertarian idea of, you know, the, the libertarians largely believe that the society is going to break down. There's going to be like this huge disruptive event. They call it the disruption. Um, and they actually think Trump might be the disruption. Um, 
which is probably true. He'd be fairly disruptive. I don't necessarily know that we would all then choose to live in a Randian paradise collectively, um, but you can't fault them for having the idea. His support comes from across the full range of Republican identifiers, but largely it's centered in those over the ages of 55. And that's actually the strongest indicator of his support demographically. It's people over the age of 55. It's even stronger than race. The one thing that, gets, that can tell you what a Trump voter is, though, is not where they come from. It's not what they look like. It's not even what they believe. It's do they agree with the following statement? People like me don't have any say about what the government does. Has an 86% support correlation. If you believe that the government is non-functioning, you are probably a Trump voter. Because on the other side, you've got Hillary, who is the most machine of machine of machine candidates that's ever machined in the history of the machine. All right, like this is a woman who has been living in a mansion since before I was born and is running as the candidate of the working class. It doesn't really resonate with a lot of people, and especially with younger folks, right? Because there is something to be said for the fact that I am 33 and I have just figured out how damn young I am. I can't imagine how young I'm going to be by the time I'm 43 and 53, right? Of how much I will not know. On the other hand, it is nearly impossible for me to imagine that somebody who has been living in such rarefied circumstances for longer than the entire span of my life understands what it is to be working two jobs and not be able to afford childcare. It's just hard for me to swallow. And so when you come up against things like that, that's why we're kind of all a little bit wishy-washy, is it's a question of do you trust your government? Now, is that us preparing for fascism? Because that's the word that everybody's throwing around. Like, this guy's a fascist, right? It's, this, this is going to be fascism. And I think, okay, we're not quite to Weimar yet. Um, hyperinflation, once we hit hyperinflation, everybody worry is basically where we're at. But we're not to the part of Weimar yet. We don't have that huge ramp in unemployment, even though people are generally pissed off and we're underemployed. We have all of these things going that don't lead us necessarily on this like path to electing a strongman. And even if we do the elect the strongman, there's not any guarantee that he could actually get done literally anything he's talking about. There's not gonna be a wall. There is no wall. There can't be a wall. There's, there's, there's not funding for it. There's not personnel for it. If we could build walls, our levees wouldn't be failing. If we could build walls, our bridges wouldn't be coming down. Like, they started making movies about the bridges coming, and the Mothman Prophecies was a Richard Gere film, fantastic film, about a bridge coming down in 1979 just down the river from where I live. Like, these things continue to happen. We don't have the, the, the infrastructure capacity for wall building at this point. We're building planes that nobody wants and delivering them 23 years late. So the recovery hasn't been shared equally, and Americans are used to hegemony, right? We are used to basically doing whatever the hell we want, and everybody just kind of comes along with us on this, and for the first time, the internet exists, and everybody's like, no, maybe we, maybe we won't do that, America. And we don't know what to do with it. Like, we just nationally don't have a damn clue what to do with it, which is where we're kind of doing the Brexit thing. This guy comes in and he goes, hey, not only do I know what the problem is, I know whose fault it is. And I'm going to stop them from doing whatever it is we think they're doing. We're going to stop them from coming over. Well, stop the boats. 
is essentially what he's promised us. And you guys understand the resonance of that. Y'all have been stopping the boats for quite some time now. It's working out really well for you, let me tell you. But it's that same sense that, well, if you just stop the problem with some insane thing and you don't pay any attention to any of the ripples, well, the problem's solved as, long, as far as you're concerned. But that's that same attitude we've had this whole time. So we've got this unequal recovery. Most new jobs for people are casual work. Uh, uni degrees are ridiculously expensive. And here's the level of silly that our laws have gotten to for America. Now, now this is what you need to be thinking about when you're thinking, do people trust their government? Um, Congress wants to drug test welfare recipients. Now, this is a program that only finds 1% of people will drop dirty because it turns out poor people can't afford drugs at the rate of the wealthy. Um, the congressman who was the strongest proponent for this has just been jailed for cocaine possession in quantities that it may or may not have been a distribution offense. Um, this has not at all stopped the rolling on of the welfare drug testing at all. Um, because it turns out if it's a lot of cocaine, you're a congressperson, you have a problem, and you're going to go get treatment. Um, in uh, Wisconsin, they spent about three weeks debating which cheeses were too nice for welfare recipients to eat. Um, it was totally okay if they got mild cheddar, but sharp cheddar was right out. Um, that's an actual real thing. Uh, in Kansas, they banned Kansas. Do you guys know where Kansas is, like generally in America? It's kind of like in the middle, right? Um, they banned welfare recipients from going on cruises. That's what they're spending their legislative time on. Um, in the meantime, Kansas has now lost all of its bonds, has lost all of its ratings, and has the worst economic outlook for uh, basically the entire US. But we do know that austerity worked. And it's also spreading because uh, it went so well for Kansas that now people are borrowing Kansas's methods for saving, you know, a couple of million dollars here and there. Screw the future. So that is, is our politics. I mean, we um, actually get our news more from comedy sources than we do the news. That's not a joke. That's the funny part. Um, so millennials are now the most likely age cohort in America uh, to be living in poverty. Shockingly, they're also the cohort most likely to be friendly to the ideas of socialism, which is kind of a new thing for America. We've been, we've been off the socialism thing for quite some time, so you know it's got to be bad when we're like, yeah, communism, that sounds, that sounds all right. That's, yeah. So instead of uh, nominating Bernie, we've got Hillary. Bernie uh, pulled better against Trump. Uh, than Hillary does, largely because Bernie was also seen as that kind of anti-establishment um, outsider candidate. So in, we, that, that choice would not have been so stark between machine and not machine um, had we elected Bernie. Now, there was not ever a chance that we were going to put Bernie Sanders as the nominee for the Democratic Party of the United States. It would never have happened. And anybody who thought it was going to happen is lovely. And I just adore that kind of optimism and idealism. I'm personally more of a cynic, but what I'd like to see and what's going to be interesting is to see what they do next because what we are in um, is a, what people keep comparing it to is 1968. How many of you guys would understand that reference or should I? 
Okay, so 1968 was um, basically when the entire country exploded. We had Kent State, we had all of these images that you see, Ferguson, Baltimore, Cleveland, you had that going on. You had riots, you had racial incidents that were in Slake, you had people hanging people, we had just desegregated, the entire world was going nuts, there were children for some reason putting flowers and guns. I, it, it was a time in which everybody felt like the entire fabric of American society might actually slip apart because nobody knew their neighbors. Nobody could tell you who these people were, these insane people that were marching or enlisting or whatever your bugaboo was. Who would do that, right? And we have not healed since that time. So to come into another 1968 is kind of actually a frightening assertion. We have major media figures uh, in the spring. Joy Reid, who's CNN, you guys might even know that name. She's big enough, right? On Twitter going, does anybody actually know a Trump voter? And those are the people whose job it is, is to report on politics and the election and what the American public might do. And if we were lucky and they knew a Trump voter, the next thing you get is, wow, that dude's an idiot, right? They would go and they would find the racist guy and they would put him on camera, which makes for great TV. But then it also doesn't account for the fact that if you live in rural Iowa and the Trump show comes to town, oh, honey, you're going to that rally. Ain't nothing else going on in this county for another four months you're gonna go watch that show because it's entertaining. And so we kind of have this, uh, this, this thing where people don't understand the undercurrents and so they're blaming uh, what they think the problem is. Now, my argument here, I went to about, I'm gonna say last year, last year, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I went to the Queensland Labor Party conference um, and a group of minors came in and they were protesting. And I'm always interested to see when workers protest the Labor Party, right? So like, what are you guys doing? And they basically said, our jobs are going away and nobody's doing anything about it. And all the labor people, I was like, okay, well, what are you guys doing about it? They said, there's nothing to be done. They're just, it's an obsolete industry. It's, we're moving on, global warming, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That kind of policy has also been taken up in the United States over the loss of our manufacturing sectors. And so essentially what you've got is they're like, oh, well, none of these jobs are coming back. I hope you've got money for training because we've just tripled the price to college and shut down a bunch of trade schools. So the same fight that you guys were having up in Queensland, which weirdly is where one nation's starting to gain power, is the exact same thing that's going on in America. So if you want to know about the rise of Donald Trump from an economic perspective, all you have to do is look at Queensland. Um, so... Then the, the, the rest of the trust, it's actually getting bad. I was in Oregon. How many of you guys had heard of Oregon, heard of the, the takeover of the refuge? So um, I was actually out there staying with those guys for a couple of weeks, which was, um, you know, I just love that I go stay with people like that for a couple of weeks in those situations for a living now. I feel very safe and comforted. Um, but that whole situation boiled down to a resource war. What had happened was the Hammonds, who were the, the initial ranchers that, that everybody was upset about, had set a fire, a back burn on their land. I'm not going to get into the weeds on rural policy, but they'd set a fire to burn some government land. They'd gone to jail. They'd served their time. They'd come out, and then they were ordered back to jail for more time. Now, if they didn't want to go to jail for more time, all they had to do was sign over their water rights to the government. That was seen as a fairly naked land grab by most of the ranchers in the area. And they went, they took up arms, and they went. 
And what was underreported was that that little thing, that little twitchy bit of weirdness with the, the militants and the weirdos, it was actually a water war in the rural west where we've been in drought for 20, 30 years. So you've got an entire swath of the country that's already going, okay, well, what are we gonna do? This is, this is getting real now. And then in our cities, you've got Black Lives Matter having to protest in basically every major American city because in America, you can kill a black person if you're a cop and probably nothing will happen to you. For the police officers that killed Freddie Gray, um, who was in Baltimore, he was a young man that was put in handcuffs in the back of a police van and given what they called a rough ride until his spine snapped, not buckled in. Um, it was ruled to be a homicide. Five detectives or five police officers were on camera discussing it, talking about it. Um, all of them have been reinstated with back pay. So that's basically the state of race relations in America is we have a hashtag, and I'm very active in the Black Lives Matter movement, we have a new hashtag, by which I mean a new dead person, on average once every three days. We've got over 600 so far, and this is police involved, right? So we don't trust the machinery of the state to protect us anymore. I, as an American citizen, should not have an opinion on which chemical munitions the government uses to send me home as a reporter to stop me from covering a story. But I do. I have a collection of canisters of different kinds of gas that they can use. And I know if I go to St. Louis, I have to have one kind of gas mask because it's a little harsher than if I go to Cleveland. That's not something we should know in America, but it is. So. Trump's promising to stop the boats. And he's going to make America great again. He is going to get unilateral trade deals out of the EU, you guys. That's what he's going to do. And all you have to do is, is just vote for the simple thing. And that's his danger. It's not his demagoguery. It's not anything except for he promises simplicity. He promises peace and he promises an answer and when we get to that it can get a little worrisome so the question is is has he gone too far or can he even go too far at this point um i would argue that his existence is probably a little bit too far for talking about the bounds of taste and reason but we love him for that we love over the top bombastic characters in america we normally don't make them president but he hasn't done anything that's even unprecedented in recent history. Gabby Giffords was shot in 2011, not even five years ago. We've forgotten about that. They shot an MP, Joe Cox, in Britain, not two months ago, and we're not talking about that. So the rise of Trump isn't about Donald Trump or about America, really. It's about in a global environment where everybody feels insecure and nobody understands what the future is and everybody feels disconnected from their government, how are we going to reshuffle our societies so that these things don't continue to happen? Because it should not be so that in all of the Western world we find the demagogues rising. And yet we do. So what do you do, right? What do we do to stop it? The first suggestion I would have is stop being quite so superior. When you run into somebody that you think is ignorant, when you run into somebody who has a different political opinion than you, if you start by insulting them until they submit, you are only going to make the thing that you hate stronger. 
right? When Lavoie Fedencombe was shot in Oregon, I'm active in anti-police militarization for so many reasons. Um, but when Lavoie was shot by the FBI, all of my anti-police militarization friends started to sound like right-wingers. They were glad. They should have shot more of them. And I thought, how are you going to get these people by telling them you think they should all be shot? And when I took my, my video footage of a 15-year-old boy in St. Louis, a crip, a little gangbanger, a homeless kid, right? He speaks in a very certain vernacular. But I showed a two-minute clip of him explaining why are we protesting, why are we breaking windows, why are we doing this, and he said the police should not be able to do this to us. I showed that to a 67-year-old racist-ass rancher in Harney County, and she went, oh my god, he sounds like us. Oh, he, I showed it to a rancher in Oregon, um, and, and she said, you know, actually, he sounds like us. The, the argument is the same, that articulation of frustration is the same. And so I think that if you want to stave off this demagoguery that's based on the premise that you are disconnected and incapable of helping anything, you have got to start by actually living your own ideals. Because if you start to actually back the things that we say we back, people won't feel so disconnected. If they show up to a, press, uh, to, to a protest or they write a letter to their MP and they say, I don't think we should be torturing small brown children and I don't think we should pay $1.2 billion a year for it, stop it now. And if people actually did that, then you would find more people would start trusting that the system is in fact humane. If New Start would put people over the poverty line, one of the greatest ironies of Australia is that your poverty alleviation program does not put anybody over the poverty line. When you fix those programs, when your political campaigns aren't run on Metascare, when they're run on actual facts and data, and that's one of the problems we've had in America, is the press loves the drama. Let me tell you, it's so much easier for me to tell jokes than it is for me to actually explain the ins and outs of New Start and how hard it is to access and how many barriers there are. You guys are starting to get restless because I've been going for a minute, but you would be completely dead if I'd been talking about the ins and outs of New Start. Right? So the press said, this is amazing. We want this guy to, to, to stay in here for as long as possible. And then nobody thought that he could possibly win. So they kept going and they kept going and they kept going. And then there was the convention. And you should have seen the weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth that happened on Twitter the day after the Republican National Convention. I thought a non from the New York Times was going to have an actual aneurysm live on Snapchat. Like, just how did this happen? What can we do? Should we have said something? We all knew he was a dangerous demagogue, but we were giving equal time. Well, perhaps your duty in the press isn't to give equal time, but equal weight to valid ideas. Perhaps instead of going, okay, Donald Trump actually literally, and this is hyperbole because I'll get reported wrong if I don't say that out loud, but let's say Donald Trump said kill a bunch of puppies. All of the puppies in the world should die tomorrow. And then personally like started on it. The press's reaction would be Trump's policy of puppy annihilation seems a bit far for most voters. Instead of going, no, it's immoral bad to kill fuzzy things. All right, fine, don't kill the fuzzy. All of the fuzzy things should not die just because you hate cute. And to have that debate as though it's equivalent is also what's going on. When you hear um, a, a thing close to my heart here is Duncan's store. How many of you guys know that reference? Anybody? 
So he went on Q&A and asked the Treasury Secretary about tax policy. One might imagine that that was what one should ask the Treasury Secretary about. Um, instead, he was actually hounded until he was on suicide watch and had to flee to the bush for weeks. And now he can't find a job because it's Google. Who's going to hire Duncan Storer now? How, who's going to hire a low-income worker that you know has a mouth on him? So I've been back here for quite a few weeks actually trying to help him figure out what the next bit is. But that should never have happened because the personal life of somebody who says I have a tax policy question for the Treasury Secretary on a show called Questions and Answers in which the Treasury Secretary was specifically put up there to answer questions from a citizen. That should never have been a story. So what you do as Australians and individuals to put a stop on it is you actually have to like repress yourself from clicking on the interesting shit. You have to stop clicking on the interesting things. Click, click on tax policy. And also Malcolm Turnbull jokes. But that's only because Malcolm Turnbull jokes are funny. I also think Bill Shorten jokes are equally funny not to be you know, partisan here. But if you click on, if we make advertising pay for what we want to be as a society instead of what we fear we might be, then that's how we change this, because it is all always going to be driven by money since the beginning of humanity until the end, and we can talk communism and socialism and goodness all we like. It's always going to be about where does the economy drive the discussion. And if we want to do that, then we have to take charge of that economy. So um, voter turnout in America hovers between 50 and 60% during presidential turnout years. Um, my prediction is it's either going to be blow out way more or blow out way less, and there's no way to tell. If there's a terrorist attack, if uh, there's a huge uh, shootout in a city, it's more likely to go to Trump. If everything stays relatively peaceful, it's more likely to go to Clinton. Anybody in America that tells you that they know what the American voters are going to do in November is absolutely lying to you. Just for all the coverage you're ever going to see between now and then, nobody will know until that day comes. Um, and with that incredibly uplifting ending, I'm going to end. But I hear there's questions. Um, yeah, I was going to ask for the uplift, but that's not really my nature either. Um, so if I can, maybe I can start by asking you a question. Uh, which may be a little unfair given the sort of work that you do, but it's, uh, it's important to me. Um, so you talked about the water wars. And something that struck me about our election and strikes me about your election too is that we're talking about global anxiety. And I think it's pretty self-evident that one of the major drivers of global anxiety is global warming. And yet there's so little talk about it in I mean, election politics. Yeah, that's, um, that's a long-term concern, uh, which when you're talking about poverty policy, like, look, when I, I now have the luxury to think about, like, policy sectors, right? Um, when I was working three jobs, honey, I was lucky if I wrote the headlines. I didn't have time to parse out. If, if I read something and it said people disagree about the veracity of something, I went, oh, okay then, I guess I'll wait until they've settled it. Um, because I didn't have time to do heavy research into things like, I mean, science, I don't, I don't science and I don't sport. 
So, you know, those are two things that I just didn't cover. And now, of course, you know, I, my understanding that global warming is a real thing actually only comes because I've read a lot of scientists that tell me that it's a thing. I can't explain it. I don't understand it. I don't understand the motivations behind it. I can't tell you how to alleviate it. I just know that it's a thing and that scientists are on it, which isn't the same thing. You're not going to get that resonance, right? You can't run on global warming and expect that people who don't understand that topic are going to come with you on it. In, in political communication, and you guys noticed this in your last election too, we run on fear more than we run on hope. And so if you're running with a boogeyman, like, oh, global warming is going to get you, better elect us. Well, the guy that's got a more immediate boogeyman is then going to win. Because I can be afraid of global warming, but it's probably not something that's actually going to become a crisis for me for another 20, 30 years at the very least. You know, it's a crisis for me right now, paying my rent. That's a crisis right now. And the world can be as cool as it likes if I'm gonna wind up homeless and dead because I can't get medical insurance from hypertension before the world does anything to, with temperatures to begin with. It might not be the most altruistic impulse, but you know, damn, we're already working in the service industry. How much more altruistic do you want us to be? We're propping the economy up. Okay, I'll open it to the floor. Meredith has a mic, if you can signal. I think she's oh, gonna steal yours. Properly formed question, but um, I was thinking about uh, what Trump said about what people construe as being, you know, violence against Hillary Clinton. And I was thinking um, that this may come true before the election because I think there are enough people in America who are sufficiently wound up. I've seen the New York Times video of the things that people say at his rallies, you know, and I thought, when, when is this going to happen? You know, so, that's yeah, the first time that Hillary Clinton had death threats bad enough that she had to put on a bulletproof vest was 1994. Oh, okay. I mean, this is, this is again, not unprecedented. People, so the thing about Hillary, everybody, except for the people that like Hillary, hates Hillary. She is, she is not a figure that in America people kind of are lukewarm on. Um, I have been trying to keep my mouth shut because I was told if you have nothing nice to say. Um, and also feminism, but I've got a fairly strong critique of her, and it's not just because my dad poured Republican, you know, nonsense into my ears from the time I was very young. It's because anybody who's a strong politician after 30 years is going to have a bit of a trail of things that you wish they'd been a little braver or better on, and she's a little pro-war and a little pro-banking and a little anti-social change until way, way later for my taste, right? So I've got some critiques. On the other hand, Donald Trump is dog whistling at a rate that I can actually hear. Like he's moved past the place only dogs can hear and now everybody can hear it. And he's doing it on race and he's doing it on gender. I don't think anything Donald Trump says is a calculated comment. I don't think anything Donald Trump says is a calculated comment. You know, they've actually gone through his Twitter and they can see um, when it was an Android or an iPhone that posted a tweet and they've parsed it out. When he's on his Android, it's unhinged. When it's his staff, that's when you go, congratulations, the United States Women's Olympics team. Like, the man is, is, is incapable of stopping to think. Now, I'm an extemporaneous speaker and that, that's good and bad. If I'm hitting my stride, I'm great and I can be a little boring if I haven't found a joke lately. That dude doesn't think about it at all. He just talks. Well, he's like Sarah Palin. Look, you can be savvy and dumb. 
Like, he, he's incredibly savvy. He knows how to get that base fear. He knows uh, human behavior. I mean, you don't become an entertainer. Hell, you don't slide through life failing upwards as hard as he does unless you're pretty savvy to, like, an, a pretty amazing, you know, amount. But that, that doesn't actually mean that he's intelligent or a thoughtful speaker or that he's anything other than really good at reading a room. And if you're in the middle of a rally with people screaming, arrest or lock her up, kill those people, build a wall about those, it's not that hard to be like, yeah, I guess somebody out there is going to do something. <laughs> you know, not even think about the fact. When has Donald Trump during this election once behaved as though he thought his words had any weight or bearing on reality? I mean, this, this is a dude that goes, oh, no, the president of Mexico was lying. He's an ass. He's totally going to pay for this. Yeah, don't you worry about it. Like, who does that? The president of Mexico was, was apoplectic and profane. Like, we're, we're now driving foreign leaders to swear on camera, which I think is fantastic, but like most foreign departments, I think, would probably frown on. Okay, so everyone likes to talk about how the wall is just completely ridiculous, and it is completely ridiculous from a logistical point of view. Um, but at the same time, everyone keeps talking about it. Everyone keeps thinking about it. I talk about it. I dream about it. This wall is in a fantastic metaphor. Um, it's this wonderful way that people are kind of trying to put together their own thoughts about trying to kind of defend against this anxiety about the nation state melting away. Uh, I bring this up because what I see now, just especially with this election, and I think this is the way it's going and it's never going to go back, is that rational debate about policy, it's completely out the door. At this point, it's just completely about these kind of metaphors and these ideas and these kind of things that just get down to people on an affective level and don't touch them at all on like a political level. So I guess the question I wanna ask, you, you say, don't like uh, click on the clickbait, click on the policy. Is that in any way even a possibility anymore? Is there any way that we can actually have a policy that's like ruled by an yeah, informed public? I mean, look, that's my own idealism, right? I'm still only 33, give me one thing. Um, yeah, I, look, I think that those who are politically engaged are the ones driving the political news, right? So I think it's an easier ask than just asking like all of Australia to not click on the like, hermaphroditic crab does dance in the middle of Sainsbury's, you know, like whatever. Um, I think asking politically engaged people to be more thoughtful about how they engage with politics is honestly the only answer. Um, also, I think people should be shaming other people way more frequently. And I don't mean by insulting them. I mean, like, you don't look at somebody when they say something, um, my, my policy, uh, for example, I come from, um, uh, it's uncomfortable for me to be in right-wing spaces because racism is a little bit more openly expressed in, this, in, in certain groups, um, which I have to be at because I'm a journalist and I'm embedded and I'm trying to figure out like who these folks are. So I'm standing around and I got to deal with this, right? And I got to listen to it. And you kind of don't want to change the story, but you also like there's that limit of what you can tolerate even to keep your integrity as a thing. And so instead of going, wow, you're a dumbass. Do you even data? Like, which is what I would normally say on Twitter. Do you even data? I demand better trolls. Um, but... <laughs> I actually got one from Q&A that said I was, uh, the panel was an onanistic orgy, and I was like, that's the best trolling ever. Like, that <laughs> is quality trolling, when you bring me those level of words. Um, but no, I think, um, I think that what I tend to do is look at somebody and be like, wow, why would you even say that? Like, like what gain do you get from saying that? Like, what, 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 what are you hoping to get here? 
with that phrase coming out of your mouth because you know I'm not going to buy it. So the only thing I can think of is that you, you actually are, are saying it because you, you have some need to be offensive. So explain to me why you walk around just trying to offend people all the time. Like, what happened to you as a child, man? And um, generally, they go away. And, and they stop behaving in that way near you because you've taught them they're not going to get what they want out of you. And I think we need to do the same thing in the political sphere. Like, look, when, when somebody goes, um, for example, the kids in Dondale, you know, probably deserved it because they're like, what, 17? Have you seen how big those kids could get? You go, right. Um, and even if I go with you on that one kid that was busting out, right, like needed to get him under control at whatever condition, you also tear guessed five other children who were locked in a cell. So explain to me how a group full of UFC dudes could not detain one child half their size between them without tear gassing these other kids. So what you do is you just take it down to the rationality and that base morality and, and insist that they answer the question. Just don't engage on the other level because they're trying to get a rise out of you. And if you let them get the rise, then there's your Coulters and your Bolts and your Trumps. Well, that's why I say let's not click on the thing. Now, I don't think that that's necessarily going to translate into us not clicking on the things, but I think it doesn't hurt to say. Hi. Uh, thanks. Uh, two questions. One is, even if Trump loses, is the genie out of the bottle? Um, oh, yeah. In terms of this very disaffected group, you know, we've heard these very disturbing, you know, uh, whether or not he's inciting people to uh, assassinate Hillary Clinton, what's going to happen to this group of people who are angry, who have guns, um, is Trump just going to go away? And then my second question is with the Bernie Sanders movement, he has announced several initiatives that, you know, wants to, uh, political movements to get, you know, more people involved in politics at, at all levels. And not being back in the States, what is your awareness of, of that in terms of engaging with um, working class people or the people struggling to have the three get jobs sure. that are that are part of that and is that is that some type of hope to actually get those people involved in the political process? Do you remember process? Obama for America? I'm sorry? Do you remember Obama for America? Yes. It's now organizing for America? Right. It's probably gonna go like that. That's, I, I don't have much hope that um, we don't have a history of, of uh, candidates starting movements that last. Um, we have a history of, of public figures doing it in outside of electoral politics, but generally once the campaign's over, so is the momentum. Um, with the Trump people, I mean, look, it's not like they didn't exist before. It's just that the Beltways discovered that they exist for the first time. These are the same people that have been voting for the NRA and supporting you know, abortion restrictions and all of the things that we've been kind of huffing about for all of these years. Only now we've gone, oh, and also we don't care if you get yelly and insulty. Whereas before we kind of insisted that they didn't get yelly and insulty. But the open carry guy has been going on for years and years. I mean, this is nothing new. The fact that they have a locus and a focus for it all is, is kind of new. Um, but look, I'm from rural Utah. I own a bunch of guns. I was taught to fear the government. I do fear the government. I do own arms partially as like a giant middle finger because no, you will not leave me unprotected against the people with tear gas. Are you kidding me? Are you high? No, I have a cave. I'm going to go live in it. And uh, you know, when you're from the mountains, you can have a cave that you go live in um, because I could survive very well in the wilderness for a month. I had to learn it in high school. It's cool. 
Um, the vast majority of Americans don't, but then the vast majority of Americans aren't living in the mountains. So, you know, I think what you're going to see is the same thing as before. Either they win the culture war and we take a few steps back, or they don't win the culture war, we take a bunch of steps forward and everybody goes back to the caves and the mountains. And we all pretend that they don't exist again until something bubbles over, because that's really all this is. I mean, racism didn't like suddenly burst into being when Donald Trump filed for the presidency. Like this started with Trayvon Martin and then it continued with Ferguson and it keeps going. And, and this is just unfortunately for us, as long as it didn't spill into electoral politics, we could pretend it was a fringe. And I think that's the difference people are feeling is now like, holy shit, this is mainstream. Well, dude, it was mainstream before, just everybody was too polite to say it. If Donald Trump has done one good thing for America, it's that he's put it all out there so we actually have to look ourselves in the face and go, oh my God, is this really who we are? In terms of Trump's campaign, one of the interesting things I find about it is his daughter, Ivanka Trump, the pretty blonde one, who's like, says things, she, she's very interesting, I think. Um, and I was wondering, because also her husband is his campaign manager, to my knowledge. I was wondering about your perspective on her as someone. She's like, I'm a, I'm a wonderful woman. I work full time. I have children. I'm iconic. Yeah. I well, I mean, look, we we do that with all of our rich people children. Um, that's how we got that uh, show with uh, what Paris Hilton and Nicole Richie. Uh, we, we, if, if we have a famous dynasty, I mean, Anderson Cooper's a Vanderbilt, right? Like, we just do that. Now, Ivanka, to, I, I've never met the woman. Everybody says she's smart and capable, and, and I'm sure that she is. But if your dad was running for president, what would you do? Like, I, I don't think my dad should run anything, but I would probably lie. I mean, it wasn't under oath. Yeah, he'd be great. Vote that guy. And then I would, like, get the hell off stage, which, if you notice, she does that a lot, too. <laughs> so I, I don't really, I don't really, I don't know the Trumps personally, so it's hard for me to have an opinion. I mean, that... Oh, like... I, yeah, so's Chelsea. That's what we do. That's America. Like, oh, look, I have a perfect child, and they also have a perfect life, which means we must have perfect genes. So definitely put us in charge of the nuclear. Hi, thanks. Um, thanks for a wonderful talk. Um, I was also going to ask you if the genie's out of the bottle, um, but particularly um, what it means for the Democrats and probably even more importantly for the Republicans. And if I can, um, if you don't mind, one thing you said fascinated me, that America hasn't recovered... I think the word was recovered from 1968. Um, I'm not sure if recovered was the right word, but fascinating concept. Um, can you elaborate on that a little too? Oh, um, yeah, you're going to have to remind me because that's pretty broad and I get... Hmm. Um, yeah, so no, we haven't recovered from 1968. Um, we, we just stopped talking about it. So like in the 70s, the city of Philadelphia bombed a black separatist... Uh, uh, enclave, or, or I don't know what you'd call the move buildings, but they had, you know, a couple of houses, and they kind of did their thing, and the neighbors didn't like them, so the police bombed them. And then we had Rodney King, and then we had, you know, Katrina, um, and people keep getting shot. Like, we've never come back. E everything that we've done since then has been 
well, maybe if we don't talk about it, it'll go away. And now this is forcing us to talk about it. No, you can't put that genie back in the bottle. The Republican Party is going to split up. The Democratic Party is going to be damn lucky if it doesn't. And I think we might actually be at one of those points where the parties flip. Because you'll notice somehow the Republicans love Russia and the, the Democrats now are like, we can't let Putin near the anything. And since when was that how we rolled? And Donald Trump's talking about deregulating banks and Hillary's or talking about stricter regulation and Hillary's the one deregulating? Like, what? <laughs> I, it's why I say nobody knows what's happening. Um, but yeah, Jeannie's absolutely out of the bottle. We're going to keep talking about this for ages and ages, and this unrest isn't going to stop, I'll tell you that. Like, I, I've got friends and contacts and acquaintances on, on all parts of the ideological spectrum and everybody's just like, nope, this is it, we're broken, we're this is it. Um, now that's mostly the, the more radical elements, and by radical I mean th like not mainstream, like more likely to show up at protests and you know, people that would be active on an issue. I don't mean like crazy radicals. Um, but you know, when your activist element is all like, screw it, whatever, shut it down. Um, I'm, I'm predicting a little unrest for a little bit longer. I don't think, um, no, nobody is going to be happy with the results of the election. Nobody is going to have any faith in whoever it is that's going to be the president. We're not going to suddenly find Congress is going to leave its intransigence and start, you know, congressing anytime soon. Um, so I, I think that those are all problems. You know, the, the trouble the Democrats really have is that they're not developing their down ballots. So in the 1980s, Ralph Reed and the Christian Coalition and Pat Buchanan, like they really developed local candidates and statewides. And then by the time around the Tea Party, all those people had risen up and you had like a strong candidate selection, which is how we got in this mess to begin with. And the Democrats, for some reason, are just like, we could do that. Um, but instead, Hillary's doing fundraisers for you know local candidates and then giving them the money and then taking the money back to use for her presidential race, which doesn't you know not real confident on that down ballot thing. Um, on the uh, topic of Trump, people always existing, and you kind of answered the question just then. But um, I have a friend, and since uh, Trump's arrival on the scene, he's kind of turned in to some kind of uh, Nazi. Yeah. And I do feel as if he is changing the fabric of that country in a, and it's not just kind of activating people who always existed, he's kind of changing people too. And I'm uh, wondering what you think of that and if that could be true. Yeah, okay. So in, in one instance, yes, and, and, and it's kind of nuanced in that, I think that you're either the sort of person who would be able to say things that a Nazi might say, or you're not. Like, I, I, I just, I don't see how you suddenly decide, hey, I think I'm pro-genocide. Um, I feel like you just kind of have those opinions in which you either think that there is sometimes an excuse, or you don't. Um, and that's where you find your ho more hawkish people. Like, look, you can't be like, we're going to go to war in the 21st century and not think that genocide is okay. You have to already have reckoned with genocide to decide to first strike Iraq, right? So knowing that that is true, you then wouldn't be like, oh, I'm pro-genocide, right? That's not the way you'd phrase it. But if you have somebody coming up and going, hey, not only are we going to first strike Iraq, we're going to do it because of these reasons. Those people are, are you know, probably racist and some I'm sure are nice. 
which was, you know, the Mexican quote. So I, I think that, um, yeah, he's creating more reactionaries. He's allowing conversation where there would not have been conversation before because what he has done is taken the social penalty for saying something that might confuse you with a Nazi away, which I don't think necessarily turns people to Nazism, but it does make folks who have no real understanding of why they are so angry, right? Like, I was, I was, encapsulated with rage for 15 years because I never had enough. I could never get ahead. It didn't matter how hard I worked. People were going to call me lazy. I had three jobs. What the hell do you people even want from me? And if at the apex of that rage, at one of the worst moments, somebody had come to me and said, you know what? These are the people. These are the people that did it to you. I don't know. I mean, we're socialized to be racist. We live in these societies that have these systems that tell us, you know, and enforce all of this. So you get somebody in there that preys on all of those fears and all of that rage, you're going to hear a lot of people saying some crazy shit. Now, does that mean that, that they necessarily are changing their opinion, or does it mean that they're being swept up in this fervor? That's a religious, uh, we have what they call the burned over regions. Um, in, the, in the late, I think, 1800s, there was a, a religious revival that swept an entire section of the country where people who had never been religious were suddenly screaming at their neighbors they were gonna go to hell. And it's cathartic, and there's something about participating in, 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 a, in, a, in a, the two minutes hate from 1984. There's, there's something in that. I wish I could tell you what it was, um, but I don't think Trump is creating you know, new, new antisocial attitudes. I think he's identifying and allowing them to be articulated where they weren't before. Uh, I, when I was introducing you, Linda, I talked about making space for different sorts of knowledges and listening to you, it struck me that sometimes there are knowledges that we just don't want to know about because they're too hard to know about. And uh, you certainly haven't given us a way forward, but I think what you've done is is invited people to actually look at the fact that it is very broken and not just to look for the quick fix to the immediate pain, but well, to recognise uh, the deep the depth of the brokenness. Yeah, let me let me let me give a slight amount of, of hope here. Um, look, I think that if we are having this discussion, it is a healthy sign. And I think that the, the problem that we have is that we haven't talked about it for so long that once we finally realized what was going on, it struck us and we're all like, hey, what, just whiplashed with what the hell just happened here. So if we find ourselves in this dire situation and then our first response is to identify the problems with it and look at how we stave them from happening again, I think that that is all of the hope of any political structure and all of the hope of, of politics to begin with is to go, we can identify problems and fix them. Now we've let it get a little out of whack, but that doesn't mean it's irretrievable. It just means that we have got to do it differently and better than we have done so far. Now, if that isn't the exact same thing that every, every generation has ever said about politics, then, you know, look, we're in the same spot as everybody else in human history ever has been. And for every Hitler, there is a nation that turned away at a Hitler that was being created. So I think that's the choice that we've got. I think in 20 years, that's going to be the choice that you guys have of do you walk that path or do you walk a more liberal one? Uh, liberal in the American, not the Australian sense. I have to do that every time. And, uh, you know, so there's your hope is that if, if it were hopeless, there would be no point having the conversation. 
The signs of hope are that for every armed militia person who thinks that the government's coming for their water, there's six protesters screaming Black Lives Matter. And the numbers are on our side. Rational and reason are on our side. And though we lose sight of it for a little while, it eventually comes back to normal. I mean, if nothing else, he's going to run out of insults. Like, he's, about two weeks before the election, he's just going to be up there. He's going to be like, I got nothing, you guys. Just vote me. Hate everybody. Vote me. And I don't think that's going to win. So, uh, If you'd join me in thanking Linda, and thank you very much. <laughs>